morning and welcome to Rising. We've got another stupendous show for you today. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. What's what's happening? What's shaking? All right, well, we have an update on Maui. After touching down in Maui yesterday, the president and first lady were met with some anger by some residents who say the current administration is abandoning the victims of the island's deadly wildfires. A group of protesters posted up across from the airport shouting expletives at Biden's motorcade shortly after his arrival. And another resident on the island displayed a sign on their lawn saying, quote, Trader Joe must go. The president kept his visit short after attending a few fire-stricken sites and paying his respects to victims during a ceremony. He and the first lady returned to Air Force One. They then flew to Lake Tahoe to finish their vacation. The host of Morning Joe defended the president after a video appeared to show him falling asleep during yesterday's short events. Let's watch. It's the same thing with this Joe Biden and his sleeping deal. You actually look at the longer, the, the longer video. He coughs. He bows his head like the woman next to him. He takes like four deep breaths like he's trying to catch his breath. I, I, we don't know why. Maybe, maybe he was moved. And then he's like nodding, looks up. And yet the screaming headlines is Biden's sleeping, Biden's sleeping, Biden's sleeping. And he coughs. And now look at this. Okay, goes down. He's been traveling a lot. Look at this. He takes one, two, catching his breath. By the way, the lady next to him several times, head bowed too, is very moving. And, he, you know, he's listening to the speaker. He goes, yes, he raises his head. Oh, my God, it's the end of the world as we know it. The only thing, Willie. The only thing that we can thank God for is that Joe Biden was not wearing a tan suit because then we've been a total meltdown on the floor. Right. But I will tell you, the people of Maui and again, read, read the local coverage. Don't listen to the lies on Trumpy outlets. Read the local coverage. All incredibly positive. Wearing a tan suit or perhaps even riding a bicycle. Even worse, Joe, that could have been big oh, news as well. Yes. If you're watching this this morning, you have no idea what we're talking about. It's because you live in the rational world where this was an insignificant <laughs> moment, not a controversial one anyway. Hello from the irrational world. Yeah, Robbie, they were big mad about this. Look, um, uh, maybe we should have been a little bit more careful. Uh, it's not... Totally verified, I guess, that he fell asleep. He looked pretty out of it to me. But wait a minute, but, wait a minute, wait a minute. To me, the claim wasn't, I know for a fact he was in the middle of a rim cycle. The claim right. was his eyes were closed and his head was nodding during the remarks. And I'm sorry, I don't know if that video was supposed to be exculpatory. That's exactly the video that we all showed. I didn't feel like the length, lengthier time frame of it added anything to my perception of what happened, which is that it looked like he nodded off. It kind of looks like he's doing that. Have you ever been... At a conference, or the worst is driving when you're like. <laughs> well, no, I don't. I certainly. I mean, I, I don't drive. Well, but yes, I've been in class. Yeah. Many an class. 8 a.m. class yeah. where I've I've done that thing. Which I can't I, imagine you particularly awake for an 8 a.m. class. <laughs> <laughs> my, my morning She's a show night co-host She's a knows night that I'm not a morning person. <laughs> uh, but, but no, they were. This goes. They were really mad at us in particular. I, there's this NBC News article about this. So that I mean that that's MSNBC. Um, Twitter X didn't immediately respond to an email request for comment about the Hannity video. They're claiming there's like a lower quality video that was shown hmm. by uh, and Fox News on which Hannity has a show also didn't immediately respond to a request. Um, several videos on YouTube used the lower resolution video to allege that Biden fell asleep. 
One from Tim Pool had 116,000 views. Another from The Hill, that's us, uh -huh. had 118,000 views. Um, thank you, viewers, for uh, <laughs> tuning in. And a third from a self-described motorcycle enthusiast had 3,000 views. YouTube, and then this goes on. YouTube bans misleading content if it has been technically <laughs> manipulated or doctored in a way that misleads users and may pose a serious risk of egregious harm. YouTube didn't immediately respond to an email request for comment. You see what they're trying to do there? Yeah, they're trying to get us banned. Okay, but this is what I don't I don't get it, Robbie. I, I didn't know that there were two different qualities of video. When I watched that video from the Joe Scarborough show, yeah. it looked just like the video that I've seen. I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't see the difference. I was waiting with bated breath to be to be disabused of my belief that he had actually nodded off. I didn't Am I missing something? I didn't. I, I didn't see. I, I, I mean, I can't hear him snoring. He's. He's. Maybe he's more engaged in this in in the remarks he's hearing than anyone has ever been in the history of time. <laughs> um, maybe we, you know that we we played a video. It was. Do was it doctored? Was it like we're just asking questions? Was it doctored? Who doctored this video? Was it Russia? Exactly. Like that's the tone of what exactly. they're doing here. Exactly. Also, they by want the way, us banned from it, from. It, it is also not a crime and not disqualifying to be president to fall asleep during an event. Biden's real problem isn't that people are talking about him falling asleep. Biden's real problem is twofold. One, that the whole circumstance of his visit to Maui looks bad because it seems like it happened too late. He delayed ending his vacation to go there. Mm -hmm. He's, he was there only a short period of time so he could return to his vacation. He talked about that he almost singed the wheels of his motor, exactly. of his, uh, his Corvette. He made a coarse analogy between people, uh, you know, all these yeah. people who've lost their lives and homes to his kitchen fire that could have hurt his precious vintage car. And the bigger, bigger problem, in, in, next to the callousness which people say he's treated the Maui situation with, is the fact that he has had many, many events and gaffes for his whole career, but particularly in recent years, where he seems slower, sleepier, less articulate, and less able than he did in years past. Nobody would care. I mean, some people would care if Obama, let's say, had right. nodded off. But the implications of it wouldn't be the same. The implications that you're not fit to lead, lead not because you nodded off one time, as we all have done, but because there it seems to be part and parcel of a growing group of evidence that perhaps you are not cognitively fit yes. or even physically ready to do another four terms, yes, exactly. uh, four years. Exactly. It's it's a totality of things. It's the way he sounds, how slow he is, how unfocused and disengaged he seems. And like this, this is all for optics, right? His presence there doesn't actually, whether they get assistance or how much money they're getting, actually has no bearing on whether he's there or not. He's there. It's ceremonial. It's about optics. It's all about optics. His visit, uh, the the president's like right. He he he's not actually the, the one coordinating any relief efforts, and it doesn't matter. And if he was, it would matter if he was there or not. So it's only about the optics of it. So for him to look like he's out of it or asleep is, re is really just as bad as to actually be it, because it's, yeah. only it's only about optics. Yeah, that's the whole point of why you're there. I think that's a really, a really excellent point, Robbie. Yeah. What, what do you make of the choice? Because I saw some people criticizing Biden for ultimately going to Hawaii, but still choosing not to go to East Palestine. Mm. Um, I saw some people arguing, well, because Hawaii is blue, um, it went for Biden. It's Obama country that he cares more about those people than he did in East Palestine, Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you make of these kind of arguments? And now that he has demonstrated he can go to a tragedy, he is able to go to the site of a, a disaster. 
does that make the choice not to go yeah. to East Palestine look that much worse? I think we're going to talk about that um, later in the show, but uh, maybe he saw that Secretary Mayor Pete's visit didn't go over well. He said, uh, I'll, let, uh, I'll let Pete take the heat on this one, and uh, I'll stay at home. Well, I'm not sure that that was a good calculation, considering the Maui visit didn't seem to go off with flying colors either. But uh, stick around. We'll have more rising for you right after this. In 2024, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy hit out at CNN's Caitlin Collins after a contentious interview, tweeting yesterday, hilarious interview with CNN last night, felt like I was talking to a petulant teenager. Now, if you remember, Caitlin pressed Ramaswamy on comments he made suggesting 9-11 was an inside job. Let's look back at some of that interview. Speaking of another comment that you've made that is getting attention yeah. today about 9-11, a report in The Atlantic that you gave an interview to, you said, quote, I think it is legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Maybe the answer is zero. It probably is zero for all I know, right? I have no reason to think it was anything other than zero. But if we're doing a comprehensive assessment of what happened on 9-11, we have a 9-11 commission. Absolutely, there should be an answer the public knows the answer to. Explain to me what you meant there. This is really, it's funny. I mean, The Atlantic is playing the same game as CNN. It's funny. What I said is, on January 6th, I do believe that there were many federal agents in the field, and we deserve to know who they are. On 9-11, what I've said is that the government lied. And this is incontrovertible evidence, Caitlin. The government lied about Saudi Arabia's involvement. There was a Saudi spy named Al-Bayoumi, who they lied, and the government lied, and the 9-11 Commission lied. We know that because declassified reports in 2021 Which revealed President that Al-Bayoumi was indeed. What's that? Yeah, the report that the President Biden declassified. Yes. But your quote here, are you telling me that the quote is wrong later, here? 20 years later, yeah. But are you telling me that I'm your quote, you quote is wrong, wrong here because actually. it says... How many federal actually, agents were on the plane in the asked, Twin Towers? <laughs> yeah, when, I, when I actually, and this is just lifting the curtain on how media works again, I asked that reporter to send the recording because it was on the record. He refused to do it. But we had a free-flowing conversation. The truth is there are lies the government has told about 9-11, but it's not the ones that somebody put in my mouth. It's the one that I articulated. Now, in a televised appearance yesterday, Ramaswamy appeared to walk back his comments by suggesting his statements were misinterpreted and, and taken out of context. People should read it. There are yep. a lot of September 11th families who feel that there was more Saudi involvement than we have been privy to. I think that yep. the comments about federal agents on planes, uh, you know, really uh, sort of sent people uh, sort of wondering what you were talking about. As but, you would, as gonna... you, you probably have experienced with the left-wing media as well, the Atlantic's purposefully uh, really scripted out something well, that, that was, was taken in a very different context. Well, we just but, played but... your soundbite from there, but I, I want to ask yeah. you one more question. However, Atlantic writer John Hendrickson, who originally published the story that contained interviews with Vivek Ramaswamy, maintains that he was not misquoted in his story, and he's got the transcripts and audio to show that. Let's play some of it. What is the truth about January 6th? I don't know. But we can handle it. Whatever it is, we can handle it. But what government is agents. How many government agents were in the field? Right? You mean like entrapment? Yeah. It, absolutely. Why can the government not be transparent about something that we're using? Terrorists, or the kind of tactics used by terrorists, if we find that there are hundreds of our own in the ranks of the day that they were, that they were, I mean, look. Well, there's a difference between entrapment and a difference between a law enforcement agent I, 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 think I think it is legitimate to say how many 
police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers? Like, I think we want it. Maybe the answer is zero. Probably a zero, for all I know, right? No reason to think it was anything other than zero. But if we're doing a comprehensive assessment of what happened on 9-11, we have a 9-11 commission, absolutely that should be an answer the public knows the answer to. So in case you weren't following that word for word, uh, that was an accurate representation of how Caitlin Collins quoted him in their uh, interview together. Now, in response to the audio release, Ramaswamy's communications director, Trisha McCullen, said in a statement, quote, we are grateful that The Atlantic released the audio after we repeatedly asked them to do so. The audio clearly demonstrates that Vivek was taken badly out of context, and even this small snippet proves that. What do you make of that particular response, and can you characterize what you think, in good faith, her perception is, or Vivek's perception is, of the missing context here? Look, um, I think in that interview, as demonstrated by the audio we just heard, um, Vivek did went a little went astray and said something about agents being on the planes, which is not which is not an assertion. I've heard anyone make before. And even he any, said it's probably not likely, but he's just asking questions, right? So the broader context, by the way, which didn't, we never get into is he was talking about 1-6 and the fact that many people believe that it was a an op, that there were federal agents that encouraged right. people to break into the uh, federal building and that it, 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 mm -hmm. it was by design, right? That the government did it. It really wasn't these individuals. They were basically set up. And so the implication is, were there federal agents on the, on on the airplane during 9-11 is also, did the government also instigate that tragedy? Right. Which is a big claim to just be asking questions about. So I get that he, even in the context of his own quote, says, well, the, the number is probably zero. But there is some question as to why you would even raise that implication yeah. if Look, you don't believe there's some possibility, some likelihood, in fact, but it that doesn't, it would be true. It doesn't sound like he does think that. He got a little over his skis answering this question, sure. and it's not a good quote, and he's kind of walked it back, and I, I don't think it's that important. I mean, the media yeah. has been covering this, like, wall to wall. It, it feels very much like a gotcha. It's like a legitimate gotcha, because what he said in the transcript of that was not a, a good thing to say. It's a little outside the bounds. It's not mm -hmm. well-supported. It doesn't even sound like he thinks that. He mm -hmm. was doing a, I'm asking questions, but it's it's right to ask questions and be skeptical, even about, uh, about January 6th, which I, you know, as you, our audience has heard my comments on the subject before. I absolutely lay the blame for it at Trump's feet. It is still the case that most of the people there were engaged in nonviolent First Amendment activity. It is the case that that there was that uh, Ray Epps individual, you know, who's he was even shouted down by the other, you know, uh, Patriot group around him people saying, yeah, we need to go in. They're saying, nope, you're a Fed if you say mm -hmm. that. Um, and there is also a, a long history of entrapment style police. Uh, tactics against um, all sorts of, you know, politically disfavored groups, um, including uh, white nationalist groups, um, patriot groups, militia groups. The Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping, the governor of Michigan, is is beyond any shadow of a doubt have, has been yeah, shown course. to be definitively orchestrated by uh, by this, these militia members who are being paid to continue the plan by federal law enforcement right. so that they would be able to charge the people in the, in Bla the conspiracy. Black Panthers. That happens to Black Panthers. It yeah. happens to Islamic, young Islamic teenage men on social media sites yes. 
venting frustration, will be will be contacted yes. by federal okay, officers. So we, we, we all that, which is what he was saying. He didn't say it. He, the way yeah, he brought in 9-11 planes was dumb. Here, here's the problem. Who cares? I, I'm, a, I'm of two minds about this. If you really think that America did 9-11, there are plenty of people that agree with you. And go ahead and stand by it and make your case. Mm -hmm. If you if you have evidence, if you wanna if you wanna be a 9/11, like there's I, I'm very I'm, as a human being, my constitution is I'm very I'm open to a lot of conspiracy theories because that's the nature of conspiracy, and I know that the government does terrible things. Okay, but it's obviously ill-advised in the context of running for president when most people see 9-11 as one of the worst tragedies that have ever been befallen America. To start speculating along those lines when one, you don't have any evidence, and two, you don't apparently even believe it and you crumble under even a little bit of pressure and pushback. So here's my question. I, I agree with you that it feels like a, a bit of a gotcha that is perhaps being milked if he just slipped up his words a little bit and people are trying to make a lot out of it because yeah. they don't like Vivek Ramaswamy and the liberal media, et cetera, et cetera. That, that is up to a point. The point at which he gets on Caitlyn Collins' show, and instead of just saying, you know what, I don't actually believe that there's any anything untoward that happened with 9-11. There's no evidence for it. I was just making a broader point about why people believe in conspiracy theories. Instead of doing that, I'm sorry, he sneered and patronized Caitlin Collins. He said she was a petulant child in the aftermath of that interview. He was, I'm sorry, very disrespectful and, and dismissive in a way that maybe is justified if you were correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you were correct and you're really getting railroaded and lied about on the liberal media. But in fact, she was simply asking you to justify and contextualize her comments. And you could have really made her look like she had egg on her face if you just said, Look, I am running on a lot of things that are really important to the American people. I admit that this isn't one of them and not even something I'm especially committed to. Let's get back to the issues that matter. Yeah. Instead of trying to make it um, a manhood swinging contest with a reporter at a certain point, I'm sorry, it, I, the, to me, the, the biggest fault I would put on Vivek Ramaswamy in this is not getting out over his skis, as you put it, but choosing to come off as so hostile and domineering. When someone like RFK Jr., we've seen him in these situations, and to his credit, he, he says things like, you know what, I have to look into that. I'm not as familiar with that issue. I'm, ha I'm happy to reflect on that. I'll come back to you on that. I mean, he was pretty thunderously upset. I mean, I mean, he didn't call anyone a petulant child, but about how his comments were misconstrued in the mainstream media. I've never seen RFK Jr. behave that way to a member of the media. He's very critical of the media. Mm -hmm. He calls out where their misrepresentations. I have never be seen him. I've watched many, many hours of RFK Jr. content. I have never seen him behave so dismissively to another human being in any context, no matter how adversarial these interviews are. I think that's part of why he was able to be so successful and be so much on the rise. And I am a little concerned. Vivek Ramaswamy has seen some success in polls in recent weeks, but he has. There's some danger, I think, of him being as politically right in a way that is alienating to some of the Republican base as Donald Trump, without Donald Trump's kind of humor and mm -hmm. charm, if you will. And also having the worst qualities of Ron DeSantis, where Ron DeSantis comes off as kind of peevish and unlikable in a lot of these media contexts, despite having some of Ron DeSantis's better qualities, like being more informed and articulate than, say, a Donald Trump. And there's a there's a weird way where he could be pulling the worst of both of those, as well as some of the best of both of those. And I don't know how those are going to fight out. I mean, I don't know. It, you know attacking term. attacking CNN is obviously something that 
the Republican primary base enjoys. Ron DeSantis's big mistake there is not giving them any fodder because he doesn't do enough mainstream Robbie, interviews. Even, even in that Fox create... interview at the end, the last clip that we played there, it felt like the Fox News host even was like, Vivek popped in with like, and the liberal media tried to get me, right? And she was like, well, well, Zero your comments. Well, but we'll see what what uh, I love that host, Martha McCallum. Um, we'll see, you know, what the viewers think and what she thinks could be different things. That, that, that's true, but I mean, at, at a certain point, at a certain point, if you have egg on your face, you were wrong. Like, you, you. I mean, he, yeah, it just he lied, Robbie. At the end well, of the day, he said that he was misquoted. That that was on an accurate quote. Caitlin Collins says on the show, well, yeah. is this an inaccurate quote? Like, she was giving him the benefit of the doubt. And he says, yes. Yes, it is. I was misquoted. And then you, right. you, there's he a tape. Said, he should have just said, um, I'm sorry if I gave the impression that I thought, like, there were federal agents in the planes. I absolutely don't think that. Right. Um, if that's the impression you got, that's wrong. Right. That's not what I mean. I was just talking I in general that. about how, you know, we don't know the full story about a, a lot of subjects, January 6th, other things, maybe 9-11 as well. I don't trust the government in general. Sure. But I was not saying anything about that. I get that. Let's move on. I get that. That's how I would do I, it. Well, I hope this is lessons learned because he is on an upswing and I do think there's yeah. a lot of appetite for his brand of politics out there. I'm just not sure picking, like making unnecessary enemies, like but the, the, the media the corporate media, both liberal and conservative, makes enough mistakes and is biased enough. He referred to the Atlantic as left wing. That's LOL, because the left can't stand the Atlantic because it's a neocon, warmongering institution well, I'm, headed I'm, by Jeffrey Goldberg. I'm the only person on, well, on, to the extent I'm on the right, who understands the difference between liberals, progressives, and the left. But that's the thing. That, that, it, as long <laughs> Everyone as, else condenses I, I'm those very categories. Skeptical, and, and kudos to you for that, Robbie. Yes. You're head above the rest. But I... I, it, is a, it is a problem when I see people who are riling against these institutions in a way that they should, but in a way that seems to be trying to preserve the integrity of other corporate institutions that just happen to be on their side. If you're a conservative saying, I hate the corporate media, but I love Fox News, if, if you sound just like a liberal who's like, I hate Fox News, but I love the Atlantic, I mean, Fox it's Fox has taken a lot of heat from conservatives these days, though. I, yeah, that, and, that, and those people have a lot more integrity, but if they're, taking, if they're mad at Fox simply because they fire Tucker and not because they have always been, like all of these institutions, corporate media that have uh, are beholden to advertisers and have the same kind of biases and built-in problems as all of it. Well, then, are you really well, not, upset not, at corporate media, or are you just upset at the guy you don't like, the politics you don't like? Well, that is what the, conservative media doesn't have. The, it's not or conservative viewers and people don't have the same hostility to corporate media. Right? Is a is an independent and left. They say thing. they do. Yes, but not because but not because it's corporate, because it's establishment and toes a mainstream narrative that is hostile to their worldview. What, what does establishment mean? What what motivates the establishment? That's a very good point, Robbie, because this is my fundamental problem with some of these right populists. Yeah, well, this what is, is your but what is there, your, but it's a, it's a, it is a actual disagreement but, but Robbie, and difference of opinion. What is your politics? What what makes the establishment bad? Is it just an empty word like elite? Or do you have a core idea of there's a group of people whose interests... Because it's pushing interests, policies that they think are harmful wait, to them. a core of people whose interests, whose motivations, or political interests are fundamentally misaligned with yours because of their material status no, in this country. No, that is country. right. That is I, not I, what this side I know, thinks. That's I know what your side thinks. No. It's a general disagreement. I know, that's, I know the answer is no, Robbie, but I'm trying to make a point here. My point is that that is why they are so frequently misled by people who create a fake version of politics that appeals to them and leads them exactly into astray. That's why Donald Trump can get on the debate stage in 2016 and say a lot of good, true-sounding things about the swamp and then get into office and appoint 
all of these Wall Street tycoons and revolving door animals right back into the swamp that he said he was going to drain. And so my, my point is not, it's a rhetorical question I'm asking and imploring conservative viewers who I think have the right instinct to say at the end of the day, I'm not expecting them to agree with my politics, but if your problem is that people who work in industries then go and enter the government to regulate their own industries in a way that is self-serving and self-beneficial, if your problem is that the, the pharmaceutical titans and all of those people are writing our, our public policy and the government is corrupt, that is correct. But just saying the government is corrupt because it's the government, you're going to you're going to be exploited if you don't have an actual more sophisticated analysis of why it is the people you don't like aren't acting in your interest. And it's not just vibes. And the same thing, the same thing I would argue uh, is true when you're talking about media critique. People aren't just sitting around saying, oh, I just want to be evil. What is motivating people in having the approach that they have? But it is genuinely different values because, or not that I can speak on behalf of all conservative people or something, but conservatives have a different political ideology. It's not like they don't hate um, businesses or even very you know, wealthy people just making money for its own sake. They don't like stigmatize or demonize I, I, that. I, I agree. They, I understand they don't that. Want, they don't want the government supporting um, progressive cultural, social, and economic values well, no. that they don't I, agree I, with. I think like, that it's, that... It's, a, it's a fundamental different. I mean, a lot of these people want abortion to be illegal. They want well, a lot of them gay don't. marriage to be illegal. They want most of them do not. In the, the overwhelming majority, conservative primary voters, the, the overwhelming majority of Republicans do not want gay marriage to be illegal. Gay marriage has flown the shark. Even Republicans do. don't try to. No, gay marriage has been enormously popular poll-wise for years now. Among among Republican among primary Republicans, voters, yes. I think it's pretty close. And like the vast majority of them I, I don't, are pro-life. Like I'm just saying, there are different values. You can't say, well, Rodney, why if they would just get understand that the corporate media is is and corporate corporations and their influence on government is bad. I mean, they agree that, but at the end of the day, they want fundamentally different policies. I don't know. I, I, I feel like I said that explicitly. I said I explicitly said that I understand that there's a, a value gap. I'm not asking people to understand my values, but if you are waking up confused as to why, or you expect someone like Donald Trump to do what he said he was going to do, I'm not asking. I'm not talking about my agenda. Donald Trump didn't fulfill his own agenda, his own promises to his constituency. You have to ask yourself reasons why, and so you don't get led down that same primrose path of false promises again and again. David Ramaswamy, who is he as a person? How did he make his money? What does his entire life up to this point tell you about what his core values are? And then what do you expect him to do with those values when he gets into office? And are you going to use that as, a, as an indicator of how he's going to lead as a potential president? Or are you going to lead, are you using the fact that he says, I hate the Atlantic, I hate the corporate media, as though someone who's spent his entire life from Harvard to Yale to the biopharmaceutical industry to being named an ESG world leader. He objects to that and asks him to take that down. But that is the world that he has been living in. And so I don't know, maybe people can change. People can change. But voters have to be clear-eyed about what the likelihood of that, given people's priors and the ideological commitments that they have made throughout their entire tenure before they started running for president. Yeah, well, I'm not, like, not a big defender of him or something. If you know, voters can make up their mind whether they believe his pivot, given some of that background that you, uh, you, you elucidated, that is, as far as I can tell, is his actual background, that he was a you know, World Economic Forum um, uh, fellow or yeah. something like that. Um, I mean, he has been denouncing ESG for like for a long time, well, you know, well before he was running for yeah, president. He, I'm not trying to say this dismissively, but since he yeah. wrote this book, Woke Inc., and was walk, is promoting 
that book. Now, I'm right. sure he had the ideology before he wrote the book. That's why he wrote the book. But the demonaz- But that's how he came onto this the is, scene. Just because you are a, an elite or you're well-educated or you worked in an industry that's profitable like the pharmaceutical industry doesn't automatically make you an enemy of conservative people. Maybe it automatically makes you an enemy no. of left populists. No, no, no. But it's what I, kind of I, influence are they exerting I, not, and is it contrary to the policies that conservative people want? I'm not talking want? about conservative people. Not an enemy of conservative people. Is he going to be looking out for the interests of poor and working people? That's the question. Right. It's a this question about, for a left populist. No, it's a question for poor and working people who are looking to vote for someone who's going to uplift their interests. And what poor and working people are going to have to ask is, do I care more about the woke politics? Which, it's, if you care about that, I'm not trying to tell you you shouldn't. I don't, but God bless, that's your choice. But what they're, the gamble of these people is, are you going to care more about that than the fact that he has a plan to cut Social Security and Medicare? If you go to Vivek Ramaswamy's website right now, he says he wants to end Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society programs, the flat, the keystone of which is Medicare and, Me- and, and Medicaid. If you, I know what you think about it, Robbie. We should you do that. You think that. But these are two of the most popular social programs in the world. Most of our grandparents, most of our grandparents, people who are not, don't come from affluent families, are heavily reliant on these programs to, to, to not be destitute in the street they were before the 1950s. The, the elderly mm-hmm. poverty rate was decimated by those great programs, and that is Our why elderly so many people are very them. wealthy. And I think well, even a lot of young my, conservative yeah. people are sick of the transfer, <laughs> of the upward transfer of wealth and power to the elderly. Robbie, the one percent, like the, there are, there are, there is this glut of very wealthy elites that are sitting on these houses and making life miserable for everybody else. But the average American income is fifty thousand dollars a year. There's no most of anything in America that is very wealthy. People are struggling. We yeah. sit on the show every day and talk about how people are struggling. We talk about inflation and Biden not being people crap are struggling. And, and inflation being high because there's seniors on budgets that are trying to make do with the with 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 cost of living adjustments that don't keep up. Although Biden did help with that for for seniors, so we'll give him credit for that. And with prices of goods going up and with housing costs going up, and now they have to start paying their student loans back. The, the largest, <laughs> no, the largest growing group of people that owe student Conservative debt. Conservative people want them to pay back their loans. Just, like, let me just make the point: the largest I, growing I'm people. Letting, the largest, the largest growing population of people with student debt are seniors. So you can say that they deserve to. I, I'm not making a, a value argument. I know that you think that they should have to pay the debt, but this is the reality. People have to vote on their pocketbooks and what benefits them in life. So you can say they shouldn't vote right. in their self-interest, I guess, or maybe they won't value some well, of this other stuff more. Conservatives don't think that's voting fair. in their self-interest to just like. Yes, voting in your self-interest to just take money from other people and give it to you or other people is that's not again that's not a conservative value. How maybe it, that's a left wait, populist wait, wait, value. I, I don't qualify for student debt forgiveness. I, I made more than I, I wasn't know. saying you so, specifically. So I, I'm talking about someone's grandparent that might lose their Social Security benefits, their Medicaid, and their uh, and and have to because of Joe Biden to be clear have to start paying perhaps hundreds of dollars a year uh, a month in student loan payments starting in the I, fall. I don't think the conservative plan is to immediately end these programs, but to recognize that they are insolvent in the long run. Vivek need- Ramaswamy, who we're talking about, specifically says one of his core plans on his website. If you go and Google it at VivekRamaswamy2024.com or whatever it is, is to cut Social Security, and Medicaid. Uh, that's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to smear the guy. That's what he wants. And many of you out there are, uh, want that as well. But many of you don't. Polls suggest, the popularity of the, the program suggests that many of you don't want that at all. And so the question is, are you being misled by someone who is willing to give you the cultural fodder that you want because it doesn't hurt them, mm-hmm. their bank account, their ability to become a billionaire at age 20? 
37, uh, multimillionaire, I'm sorry, at the age 37 through the biopharmaceutical industry and deregulation and all of the things that benefit the very wealthy in this country, maybe you like that. Maybe you're hoping it'll trickle down to you. Maybe you hope that you yeah, also can make money that way. And conservative people believe that deregulation benefits everyone because then the good, the service, the drug, whatever it is, costs less money and there's more competition. You and can, be you less can believe industry that. capture for one specific. God bless. If you believe that, that's fine. But the, the question fundamentally is going to be, do you, are, are you going to take someone who says there are two genders? Is, is that going to feed you at night? Is, is Vivek Ramaswamy declaring as part of his 10, um, what do you call it? Platform. Ten Commandments. <laughs> no, he has this. He calls them the Ten Commandments, and he, he reads through them at some of his events. The first one. Those are, are the um, those are the rules that God gave Moses in the in the desert. Y yes, uh, I'm familiar with what they are. Vivek Ramaswamy's version includes not thou shalt not cover another man's wife or thou shalt not murder. But there are two genders. Fine. If you get if that if that is very very important to you, all due respect, that's fine. But the, the what he is hoping, what what candidates like that are hoping in my humble opinion, is that you care more about someone owning the lives by saying that there are two genders mm -hmm. than you being able to age into old age and having health insurance. Yeah, I, I think uh, only believing there's two genders is obviously very important to the right, but it's not just that. And there is a whole base of right-wing Republican people who are not acting like you're making it sound like you think they're secretly leftists, except they hate wokeness. No, so they'll never I recognize don't think they're they secretly leftists, Robbie. A left I do think they policy. want health care seniors. They want lower taxes and less regulation, and they want the government programs to be not non existent, but to be fair. You pay into them and you get, you get what you paid it, you get that eventually, and fair to everyone and structured differently, not in a way that benefits, it overlaps with some left-wing populism because they don't want to structure it in a way that benefits massive pharmaceutical companies I, I, or anything I, like you, that. You don't have to so make this argument because I don't believe that they're leftists. What I do believe is nine out of 10 Americans who receive social security have a, a very or somewhat favorable opinion of the program. The number for Medicare benefits is 84%. It's gonna be broke by the time the people paying into it now would get any benefits. And 55% of Republicans. That's just like, we have to deal with that. 55% of Republicans, according to a 2021 Gallup poll, support same-sex marriage. So majority of Republicans at this I point. support same-sex marriage, and I have no problem with a minimal welfare state to take care of the, you know, uh, the, the, the people who most need help, but it's not even, it's not even particularly conservative to say these things obviously need some restructuring because there's massive waste and the costs are not controlled. But All right, we went way longer than we were supposed to on that one. Uh, more rising after this. A good friend. That's how one of the DOG prosecutors previously tasked with investigating Hunter Biden described his relationship to the president's son in never-before-seen emails. This, according to the Washington Examiner, which also found that several prosecutors handling the Hunter Biden investigation are Democratic donors. Hmm. Hmm. The unraveling of the original sweetheart plea deal and the Department of Justice's subsequent promotion of David Weiss to special prosecutor has the Justice Department's even most sympathetic analysts scratching their heads. Let's check in on CNN's read on this. It's really inexplicable to me. I mean, first we had basically five years of behind the scenes investigation with no transparency, no action, and some questions being asked, what's taken so long? But in the last couple months, we've seen a pattern here. Marshall just laid it out. We've now seen it play out two or three separate times. 
DOJ moves towards a very lenient disposition. They're just about to lock in that lenient disposition. And then there arises pressure, either through whistleblower testimony or through public scrutiny. And then DOJ backs off and says, actually, we're not going to do that now that it's been called out. We're going to try to up it a little bit. And then that happened again. And then they go all the way to appointing special counsel, the same guy who's been presiding over the case for five plus years already. So I genuinely am perplexed by what DOJ is doing here. I think they've made a real mess for themselves. And now they're going to have to deal with the consequences of it. Yeah, 100 percent. So it really did seem to be some combination of the whistleblower testimony and the fact that the judge just put her yes. eyes on it and had it looked at it with scrutiny. And so this doesn't make any sense because the core expectation seems to have been that no one was going to look twice at the broad immunity in the deal. And the presumption was, and, and I, the New York Times Daily uh, podcast laid out the facts in a, in a way that I thought was very clear, it's worth listening to, um, that the, the trade-off was going to be that Hunter Biden in, avoids a trial and embarrassment in, in, in exchange for the plea deal, and, and also immunity. But that isn't a, a fair trade-off. What you would presume is that, okay, Hunter Biden doesn't have to go to trial. Joe Biden doesn't have to have the exposure of his son going to trial. That's that. But then to loop in the idea that you're never going to be culpable for this year's worth of stuff that is still under investigation, frankly, that is about his potential bad Right. It's, you know, it, bad it is still under in investigation. That's what the judge asked. And they said yes. So she said, how could, we, how could we close this off that's, in the midst of an investigation? So at that point, what's so interesting and what the New York Times kind of walks through is there's still ostensibly value in Hunter Biden signing a plea deal that still is pretty lenient on the gun charges and the tax charges, but still leaves him open to... Uh, the further peddling, further, Burisma, et cetera. Exactly. But he seems to have not felt that way. And there's a shift that says, well, I'm, it's, it's all or nothing right. in a way that now has put the Bidens in a situation where Hunter's own interest in fighting this to the end is radically at odds with Joe Biden's interest in putting this to bed and not having yes. to be personally implicated in this if this goes to right. trial. In fact, because they've tried to say they'll put Joe Biden on the stand exactly. as a as a witness for the defense. Hunter exactly. Biden will. And you, Justice Department, don't want that to happen. Justice Department ran by Merrick Garland, an appointee of Joe Biden, who's ultimately looking out for his best interest, whether he admits it or not. You don't want that. So and, and they don't want that. And and David Weiss seemed, you know, despite being a Republican Trump appointee, seemed to be um, um, you know, really down with that, really wanting to, I mean, this deal is, is, is wild. And that's why he's lost the faith of Republicans. And that's why questions are being asked whether, you know, his team was more Democratic leaning, whether he had some personal friendship here with the Bidens. I mean, honestly, it, one of the possibilities that was raised in this uh, Times report was that Weiss was being pressured in the same way that we were talking about the Twitter files. It turns out that some right. of the bad actions are just they were pressured by the government. And maybe you think they should have had more integrity and right. stood up and, th and thumped pressure. their chest and whatever. But that part of why he might have demanded special prosecutor status is to get more protection from the Biden administration, the DOJ, and more independence to conduct the investigation that he really wanted to conduct in the first instance. Right. That is a possibility. Um, but it's still, it, it, does, it does make the, the kind of choice of the whistleblowers to come forward right. more interesting in light of Weiss's choice not to say anything publicly about the, that, about the potential bias, well, the what, obvious bias in the situation. And what he suggested is at odds, of course, with what the whistleblowers from the IRS, um, Shapley and um, the other 
fellow, yeah. have said about the course of the investigation that it was stymied by the Justice Department, yeah. that he was not given full license to pursue it in whatever direction he deemed fit. And Weiss has kind of said that's not the case, but it's it's pretty, it's unclear and it's ambiguous. And, and then at the end of the day, the proof's in the pudding, right? The yeah. deal was wild. Although I will say that the, the whistleblowers, correct me if I'm wrong, their emphasis seemed to be on the idea that um, Hunter Biden should have had to suffer worse consequences for the tax crimes. Not that the sweetheart deal itself is fundamentally biased because it provides broad immunity. They contradicted the what David Weiss had said about having full authority to prosecute the case. They said that was not true and that he was stymied by the Justice Department. That was the most revealing of the things they had to say. Sure, but I, I feel like a lot of that testimony was about whether or not it was, you know, um, right. Prosecutorial discretion was advised in choosing to land where they landed on the crimes, on those specific crimes. And I do think that's a little bit different. I do think there's a, a credible argument that having a plea deal, generally speaking, on the terms that were decided was fine, except for the broad yes. immunity. And it does seem like it was the broad immunity being taken out that scuttled the deal in court the day that they were supposed to sign this thing, not um, any... An immunity that specifically cited Burisma by name. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just, uh, it's wild. It, it so is. So here we are. I, I, and I, it is notable. It is, I mean, it's so wild that even like a, like a mainstream uh, media a legal commentator who you know wants to go to bat for the Biden administration can't defend it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what they know or want in their hearts and if they're big Biden boosters or what have you. But certainly, I think that they don't. The, the liberal media in general doesn't want to do or say anything that would empower Donald Trump. And the reality is that now we're in territory where a voter can plausibly believe, whether or not I would believe it or judge these things to be equal, they can plausibly believe that they're both leading candidates on both sides of the aisle are facing significant legal exposure, and that I'm therefore going to choose to vote on the basis of my principles and not on anything involving either of these cases. So to the extent that Democrats hoped that Donald Trump's multiple indictments were going to be damaging to him, vis-a-vis -vis Biden, who seems like a person with integrity and is above it all, that is all out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that it, you know, impacts how one perceives Joe Biden. To, to think that, again, the, the calls that he participated in, the dinner he attended, and, um, and then and the decision he made, that he bragged about, the foreign policy decision um, with, with respect to Ukraine and, and the judge that benefited Burisma, the son, the company his son is being paid monthly for working for, that ultimately led to Trump's impeachment. That's, that's something, I, I'm sorry, that's something voters are going to want to hear about, learn more about, and possibly take into effect. As, as they judge, and and, uh, and of course, you know, so many people in the mainstream media want to say, want to compare and say, well, it doesn't doesn't compare to all the crimes Trump has committed. He's going down for them. Yeah. They're, they're convicting him. They're they're prosecuting him, likely to convict. There, what can you say? There's an interesting <laughs> parallel here where the criticism of Trump from liberals since one six has been, you know, you stood up at the podium and you told them to do an insurrection right. and. and AOC's life was in danger and all right. of that. They impeached him for it. They voted not to remove him from office. Right. It's and over. on Get the Republicans, and, and that didn't penetrate conservatives at all. That would seem to be like a bad faith attack. Yeah. Well, I mean, some Republican senators voted to remove him from sure. office, but, but the, the, more than ever before base, in human history. It didn't rattle sure. his base in the least. And on the other side, Republicans have been, you know, many of the Hunter, drug addict, Burisma, Burisma, 
But what I think in both cases has helped it to penetrate the national consciousness on the other side of the respective aisles for both of these instances is a level of detail that perhaps the public wasn't trusted with. So instead of just focusing on the day of 1-6, actually having this, these indictments that now get into what the actual alleged conspiracy mm -hmm. was days and weeks before to issue these false slates of electors and pressure local election officials to change the election results. Well, that seems like a lot more credible and something that is more difficult to excuse. On the other hand, having evidence that there was actual bias within the Justice Department, yeah. whistleblowers coming forward, including someone who, you know, people, you know, a Trump, a Trump person now, Seemingly implicated in the bias, but also now wanting to be have a special prosecutor status to potentially go after this more closely, more forcefully. I think that also starts to penetrate from a factual matter into the liberal consciousness, and so it seems like something other than just a conservative conspiracy. And theory. this is the Hunter Biden saga is another one of those cases where it was initially derided as just it's this is totally crazy. Yeah, misinformation. Yeah. Don't look at this. You're being tricked and lied to by. Propagandists may be Russian, and look where we've come since then. I mean, yeah. this is why people end up in a place where they don't believe anything they read in the New York Times or mainstream outlets, um, even though now those outlets are starting to do some perfectly decent reporting on this situation. Uh, it was just the blanket dismissal of, uh, of, of a just asking questions mindset. So it's not, it's not wrong to yeah. just ask questions. Not all questions lead you to productive uh, places or are you know, lines of inquiry that make any sense or are in good faith. But the narrow, uh, the narrow lanes of inquiry that, um, that are imposed on us by, by um, establishment thinkers um, are extremely narrow and are missing a lot. Yeah, is Joe Biden in up, up the proverbial creek either way here. Uh, it, it, even, you know, we talk about if he goes to trial, then Joe Biden could have to testify and that's bad. But even if he doesn't go to trial, I mean, Hunter Biden's argument, people believe that he feels he's so exposed to Donald Trump. But Donald Trump has made such a case of going after him endlessly mm -hmm. for political reasons that he doesn't want to take a plea deal that still leaves him vulnerable right. to that if Donald Trump gets back into office. I mean, Hunter can always hope here that there's going to be no, well, I mean, Trump might not <laughs> win the election. Sure. Um, even if Trump does win the election, he can hope, right, that there's going to be no follow through, that this was really about the campaign. Which, by the way, Donald Trump was president for four years yeah. and talking about investigating Joe Bi uh, Hunter Biden right. and didn't get this far. Right. Or, or, right, or appoint someone exactly like David Weiss who looks at it, gives him a plea deal. It's, so it's not the end of the world. I, I mean, the reason this is being so front and center is, it's, frankly, it's about the election. Sure. If Donald Trump were to win the election, whether he cares so much about closing this loop, I, that remains to be seen. Yeah. I mean, so. now, that, now that the broad immunity is off the table, it just really does feel like they're all, they're all exposed, whether you take a exposed. moderate plea deal. Um, whether you go to trial, it, it does seem like a very mucky situation for Joe Biden, and uh, I yeah. don't I don't envy it. I, I wonder if we're going to start to see a pivot where there is more of a distancing between him and, and Hunter Biden because it hasn't happened to this point. No, it hasn't, um, and he's maintained he has yeah, no knowledge or involvement in any of his son's business dealing. We'll see how well that assertion holds up and how it looks in the face of what we've been reading and reporting and talking about. More rising right after this.
Congressional leaders have written a new letter addressed to Inspector General of the Intelligence Community on specifics of whistleblower David Grush's congressional testimony. Congressman Tim Burchett tweeted yesterday, during the UAP hearing, David Grush testified he could not provide specific details about UAP crash retrieval programs or reverse engineering programs, but said the intelligence community inspector general could. So my colleagues and I wrote to him to ask for details. The letter, signed by representatives Tim Burchett, Jared Moskowitz, and Anna Polina Luna, Nancy Mace, Eric Burleson, and Andy Ogles, who have largely been center, uh, front and center leading the UAP inquiries on Capitol Hill, they write that considering Mr. Grush's testimony was under oath, we request answers to the following questions. Which intelligence community members, positions, facilities, military bases, or other actors are involved with UAP crash retrieval programs, directly or indirectly? And which intelligence community members, positions, facilities, military bases, or other actors are involved with UAP reverse engineering programs, directly or indirectly? Mm. Meanwhile, recently, Jeremy Corbell stressed the need for government transparency about UFOs in a conversation with Chris Cuomo. Let's watch. They want to make an example of David Grush. When I say they, I mean the people that do not and are not for transparency and disclosure, friends of mine that are not for it from the legacy UFO programs, like the long durational ones. They say, I'm with you as a friend, but no, do not kick a sleeping dog. This doesn't get out. I go, why? Tell me why. Give me one reason why. What's so scary that you have to be daddy and keep this from the American public? Not once has somebody answered me appropriately, clearly, with facts that allowed me to get behind that. Not once. And it makes me think this is all about power and control of small groups that don't want to give it up. And the closer we get to the goodies, the more pushback we're going to get. He was saying, I can't tell you here because this is a public hearing. And if I do, they will literally snatch me up, put me in jail, make an example out of me and scare everybody else that wants to come forward. And the cover up continues. Well, I think this is exactly what we've been calling for on the show for a while. Yes, Robbie. the specific actors who are guilty of this alleged cover-up, the agencies involved, the person involved. Grush said he couldn't say exactly who that was, but that this inspector general does know. So they have directed their inquiry to the right person. I'm sure they're going to get a response, no comment, because these individuals need to be compelled to give up this information, I, I suspect. They're not going to go, oh, well. I, Tim Burchett seems like a, like a cool dude, but now that he's asked me nicely, I'm going to actually give up uh, the goodies, as was described in this interview. Like, that's obviously not going to happen. Well, I guess there is an argument that he's willing to talk, but just off the record, right? That, you know, I, I, you know, I, mean, I can't publicly say these things for national Congress security Congress passed a lot to compel or... Joe Biden to force the, the intelligence community to tell the public everything they know about the origins of COVID. And that was like, it was bipartisan legislation. It, like, everybody voted for it. Yeah. Joe Biden signed it. Like, finally. Then what, what, is, what did that mean in practice? It gave us a little, a, little spread, a little handout summarizing what was already public information. So in that case, I think the argument is the government is I was not mad. wanting to disclose their own involvement in funding some of the research that Even when explicitly to compelled to do so by bipartisan Congress and the president. Right. So the interests of the government in protecting its own interests are clear. Yeah. What is the argument here? Is it, do we believe that is this evidence that there are really are UAPs because the government isn't potentially willing to do more disclosures? I mean, with this and wrapping in the COVID origins thing, which I am still so miffed about, it, this is, you know, this goes to the corruption of our democracy 
at the hands of what I'm concerned about a lot of time, which is a permanent non-elected bureaucratic state that even, even in a clear case where the democratic forces, the president, the people, the members of Congress, give a clear directive reflecting the will of the people, we still don't get it because there are all these secret keepers that are just not accountable, that operate their own little, uh, this is the deep state idea, the state within a state that is not, that it remains regardless of which administration is in power and has its own agenda, um, a, a neoconservative foreign policy agenda, a very kind of cloak and dagger secrecy that has seeped into COVID and some other areas, and, and maybe this, I don't know, I can't tell. Um, and, and, but it's, it's, it's real, it, like it exists. I mean, they, you know, maybe they think they're doing the, the best they're keeping. We're not, we can't handle the truth, and they, they you know, think of themselves as telling the noble lie or whatever it is. is but it does exist. It's not democratic at all. Is that then basically an acknowledgment that the only way we're going to really know about any of this is if someone takes it upon themselves to be a really substantive whistleblower yes. and not just say, I saw or I heard someone tell me they yeah, saw, for sure. but to get the photographs, to steal the bodies, to chip off a piece of the hull of the spacecraft, whatever it is, and bring it before the public? Yes. I, again, in the to bring up the COVID example, right, so, there is some whistleblower. Now, they haven't come forward. They told various um, uh writers and the Wall Street Journal that uh, that the U.S. actually does have intelligence, that those three scientists got sick first in the lab, and that that would point pr pretty conclusively to a lab leak theory. Um, those people haven't come forward or sh you know, shared what documents with you and I and the public at large, so we're, you know, we're reliant on reporting from people who purport to have seen it. Um, so, yeah, something like that needs to occur in both cases, where we get direct access to the, is, the information. Is the implication also that the aliens are also complicit in wanting to remain secret? Well, they're dead, right? They do. They crash landed. Well, no. We people have all these sightings constantly. Not that every oh, single right. UAP is aliens, yeah. but this is an ongoing phenomenon. So, if you believe like that little, some little portion pixies, of them, pixies, like they like to play tricks on people and then stay out of, stay hidden from view, like some fantasy medieval creature. I mean, look at this. This is my. <laughs> If the if the government, you know, if, if they were, let's say, if the government were, you know, killing and stacking up yeah. alien bodies in a warehouse somewhere or were somehow adversarial to the aliens, you would presume, given all of this interest in them, that there would be plenty of advantage of them coming forward and revealing themselves. But as described, they're furtive. They speed away when observed. Yeah. That's ostensibly the difficulty in getting good pictures of the yes. craft. There are no pictures that we know of of the bodies, even though Gresh's testimony is that he knows someone who has seen the body. Right. You know, and if, Again, if that's this is the case. The behavior of fictional creatures, pixies, leprechauns. <laughs> gnomes, I mean, so what you're, um, you're saying is that it's a convenient narrative yes. for if something isn't real to yes. explain why you can't put your hands or eyes on it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's what I think about the, identif the identification of actual visitation by actual alien um, matter, alien bodies. I find that extremely unlikely, even though that is what has been alleged by, by Grush and others. Um, the, the space crafts, or, or it could be satellites, some technology, some evidence of some off-world presence is a little bit um, easier to believe. I still think it's probably just technology from our government or other governments that we want to keep secret for some reason. Um, because as, we've, as we keep kind of arriving at you and I when we talk about this, if the military-industrial complex wants to ramp up funding for, uh, if, you know, for their own benefit for whatever, yeah. scaring the public into thinking that there are aliens would be the most easy and effective way to do that. 
sure. um, as we saw, you know, in the wake of 9/11, the the American people would have accepted any violation of their civil liberties, an endless amount of military spending and budget, you know, for this purported existential threat to um, to the West, to America, but to the, Christianity. The, the one problem I have with that argument is that the the people who are the whistleblowers that are really advancing the argument that there are these UAPs that the government is hiding don't really seem to be making an argument that they're adversarial. I'm not getting the sense that there's the government is hiding them, there's a plot afoot, no. they're, there's uh, Independence Day is about to go down, we need them to tell the truth so that we can defend ourselves they're as a aliens. race, you know. They're I mean, the they're scrolls not, they're not, from the Marvel they're Universe. They're not, not saying that. They're not saying, oh, they're going to come down here and solve the energy crisis. But, they're, yeah. but they are neutral enough that, to me, if this really were a plot to support military spending, they would put a little bit more of a dark cast on mm -hmm. the characterization of the aliens and the threat. You know, the men of the, uh, there's no allegation that the wep that the, the ships have weapons or that have, they, they behaved in malevolent ways. The pilots describe them kind of whizzing by and just trying to mind their own business, not that they're colliding with spacecraft or hurting people or abducting people. Like that, that is not the narrative right now. And in fact, um, in an interview, I think just yesterday, uh, Jeremy Corbell dismissed the idea that UFOs are being, uh, or were private technology, aerospace engineering technology, corporate technology, mm -hmm. hostile enemy technology, anything like that, that would also justify an arms race and more defense spending on America's end. So, I mean, if this is, if this is the plot, then it's not being very well effectuated. Because also, I think, maybe this is just my bias of who our audience is, but it does seem to me like there's a, a significant overlap between the UFO community, the believing community, and people who are very hostile to military interventionism. And so again, I, 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 I can see that how that could be an argument, but I'm not seeing it play out in that particular mm. way. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, it is interesting, and we continue to cover it, and I hope that uh, Tim Burchett and the others are able to finally get answers from this inspector general. I'm not holding uh, my breath on it, but, uh, you know, it, it, it has felt a little bit like the cat's out of the bag in the last couple of weeks because there's been so much public interest in this subject and so many people coming forward, not with direct knowledge, but secondhand knowledge. So at some point, someone with direct knowledge has to come forward, and that's the, the day we're looking forward to. In fact, more rising right after this. No show Biden. It's been 172 days since a train carrying toxic chemicals derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, prompting a controlled burn and resulting environmental crisis among residents. President Joe Biden, though, has yet to visit the town a slight the mayor of East Palestine isn't happy about. East Palestine's mayor says there is probably more the White House could do to help expedite the cleanup, but it has been 170 days now since President Biden said he would come visit, and there still aren't any plans in place for that visit to happen. There are no show here, and you know they haven't been around, haven't really heard from them. But now that you know everything's calmed down, it would be nice to have him come um, show that you know he cares about the village and you know he can see what's actually going on here. East Palestine's... Now, you'll remember last week we spoke to a status quo reporter, Louis DeAngelis, who's been on the ground in East Palestine in the months following the crisis. Here's just one of his interviews with the residents. You relocation inevitably, and I hope, you know, I hope that it's not the case, but when the relocation and 
inevitably ends. That's kind of unclear for you still. I guess then you go back home, you sit, you wait, and hope the hell you don't get cancer and die. You know, I'm not worried so much about me. It's my family. My grandkids. Do I want to see them suffer? No, I don't. Biden needs to step up and help. We're United States. Help us. So obviously this is happening at the same time that Biden did uh, visit Maui, a trip that uh, the perception of which is among at least some people, a lot of people, is that it's not going very well, um, that he appeared kind of incoherent, you know, very old, not super clued in to um, the suffering of the people, told an anecdote that was kind of ill-timed. Um, there was a lot of debate over whether he actually fell asleep during this ceremony. Mainstream media has said that he's not and was thunderously angry at those of us who suggested that maybe he was. You know, you can judge for yourself looking at the video footage. Uh, but the residents of Palestine, Ohio, or at least the, the mayor, uh, do want him still to visit. Yes. So everyone probably remembers that Donald Trump did make a visit there uh, in, in typical and classic, I right, should ordered say. ordered a cheeseburger. Knew the, knew the <laughs> McDonald's menu better than the people who worked at McDonald's themselves. I think he said that um, yeah. to, like, laughter and, and applause. Um, and, you know, it was a trip that made him seem, in some people's eyes, presidential again. And the contrast between somebody who was no longer president being in that moment being present to listen to the people's concerns and the real president not showing up was, I think, a little bit of a turnaround point for Donald Trump. Because I remember when he first launched, people said that he was low energy. They said that his initial uh, launch event was not as well attended or not as raucous as they've come to expect from Trump events. People were thinking, oh, Ron DeSantis is going to be the guy. But over time, events like this, I think, reminded folks about why they liked Trump in the first place. And, and I think because of Trump's visit, East Palestine in particular got politicized in this interesting way, where I, I don't want to impute bad faith to any, you know, Republican voters, but historically, there has not necessarily been as much commitment from Republican electeds to spending domestically on crises. But because it was a moment to say Biden isn't doing enough and the Republicans are doing more, there has been all this advocacy for doing more for the people of East Palestine and criticisms of the EPA in terms of not doing enough in terms of testing and not getting enough involved, you know, actually mm -hmm. advocating for more government accountability and involvement in this particular arena. And I wish so badly that Democrats had taken that as an opportunity to say, Great. We want to do domestic spending to resolve domestic crises. Let's talk about Flint. Let's talk about Jackson. I'm sure you guys are all going to vote for uh, spending on all of these places all around the country that have decomposing infrastructure, where it's the pipe infrastructure or the bridges falling down in, in, in Pennsylvania. It's go time. And I, of course, I want to help the citizens of East Palestine, regardless of what their voting record is. But instead, we've had this upside down world where there has been a, a, this like choice that I don't understand to just cede East Palestine to the conservatives, to go to Maui, but only after your vacation in Tahoe, to which you returned. It's not even clear to me if Biden weren't on the West Coast, would he have gone to Hawaii? Would it have seemed too far away a trip? <laughs> you know, there's something that seems almost like convenient, like we'll yeah. stop by Hawaii since we're already 
I mean, it's still a long, it's, it's a still long, a long way. Hawaii way, is sure. out there. Um, for sure. Yeah, what I found most, you talk about ceding the whole East Palestine issue to um, conservatives. Uh, I mean, an aspect of it that I found really interesting is, is you brought up the EPA. Right, the EPA, that's the government scientists. They all say it's fine. They say it's safe, it's fine. You can drink the water, everything's fine. And um, of course, mainstream liberals now are, their like cardinal belief is we must trust the government scientists. Yeah. And government scientists say it's fine. And you know, we've had Louis Daniels on the show. He can show you that if you look at the water, it's got that, uh, that, that quality where it looks like, yeah, oil that or, or rainbow the rainbowy thing. Yeah. Um, it's celebrating a little Pride Month there in the All water. Right. Um, it's, uh, well, it lo doesn't look clean to me, but the government scientists uh, say it. So don't we, can't we trust? How could we live with ourselves if we started trusting, if we started contradicting the science, right? Yeah, look, I, I, I think we are 100% on the same door when we talk about the way that these uh, government industries are co-opted, um, particularly by people that work for the industries that the government organizations are yeah. supposed to be regulating. This is a huge issue. In fact, my um, former environmental law professor was just the center of, of controversy on the left because she was on the board of, um, I don't want to misstate it, but I think an, an oil company. Uh, and people were outraged. Your whole shtick is teaching people about the regulatory state and all of the ways that you know, the um, mm -hmm. kind of cor corporate interests have tried to chip away at it so that they can pollute more freely and be underregulated. And here you go using that expertise ostensibly to help benefit one of the very organizations that you taught us 15 years ago was such a was such a bad thing. Um, Free Freeman is her, is her name. I mean, in general, the EPA is not a friend to industry. I mean, the EPA's main role is to make it more difficult to build houses, factories, everything, to, to require, I mean, it, it's, it's the law, not the EPA, but the, the environmental impact reports, which are really costly and really slow down. Um, building of, of actually of houses, it could be low-income houses, they could, I mean, I know you and I you know, have different views of deregulation, but there is, a, there is a getting in the way of building things we need even to make like working people's lives a little bit better that is part of the environmental impact. Look, it, what is true is that it is a difficult cost-benefit analysis that has to be done whenever you're doing these kinds of projects. And this came up on the show recently as we had Michael Schellenberger on, who was really lamenting the effect that uh, energy development, um, wind turbines were having uh, potentially, allegedly, on the whale population on the East Coast. And he was making the argument that these wind turbines shouldn't be built because it was causing these whale, whale, whale deaths. And I said, well, that's interesting, but this seems very much... Right. In contradiction to the argument that many conservatives make, that you shouldn't stop development and progress and infrastructure yeah. projects simply because it's going to kill some endangered frogs. Well, he doesn't describe himself as a conservative. I was skeptical of that for that reason because I, I'm, I'm skeptical of trying to preserve, or of be, being of overly putting our thumb on the scales of stopping development for environmental reasons. I'm skeptical. Yeah, I mean, whether we're talking about whales or whatever else. Michael Schellenberger's general approach, um, he's described, he, he, he believes that economic growth can continue without negative environmental impacts. He's like a pro-technology, -technolo yeah. pro-development, pro-nuclear energy kind of a guy, despite the fact that all of those things also have negative environmental impacts, right? Like that's, 
there's no, there's no perfectly clean energy that doesn't exist. That's the whole point. And so the question isn't energy good, energy bad, right. nukes good, nukes bad. It's what are the cost benefits analysis and how can we make the world safer with ha with, while having right. minimal harm? Well, and his argument, I mean, we have him on all the time, so I shouldn't try to summarize his arguments because we could just have him on. But I think his argument, right, is that moving from, it, it, it's directional. You should move from coal to natural gas to nuclear, you should get cleaner um, yeah. by doing that direction. And wind turbines are obviously right. very clean. Like, yeah. that's, that's not the issue. The question is whether or not they're, the, it seems the building of the turbines, not the turbines themselves, but the construction of the turbine interrupted mm -hmm. the whale's habitat in these ways. So that, that we're getting far away from the point, but the question is whether or not there is a now understood desire, it's understood need for there to be some institution, some company somewhere that is willing to do what the EPA in this instance was unwilling to do, which is to say, run the kind of test that Louis DeJoy said weren't actually being run for all of the chemicals that were involved in the crash and not just mm -hmm. some of them and measuring all of the places that it could have landed and infiltrated people's homes and water and environment, not just some of them. Because there is an interest, especially when there is potential federal aid on the line for even the government to downplay the costs of something like this, especially if they're unwilling to make the companies pay for the cost to the extent that they should, because and the lever did a great job of covering all of this. The deep entrenchment of the railroad in, uh, industry's um, um, influence in the government, particularly with some um, uh, regional Congress members who've been fighting tooth and nail to prevent some of the regulations that could potentially have stopped the derailment in the first place from ever coming to, into effect because the short-term costs or something they didn't want to pay, even though the long-term cost of having derailments like this, if they were actually forced to pay for them, would make it more than worth their while. So this is, this, it's not easy. I, I, I really enjoy these conversations with you, Robbie, because I do feel like it starts to expose the extent to which this really flat argument about, well, government is good and is going to solve everything, or government is bad and is not going to solve everything, really ignores the extent to which the, we, it's human beings that are being elected and appointed as a consequence of our representative democracy that are ultimately going to be most accountable and able to do what the human beings that elected them wanted them to do. And the farther we get away from representative democracy, the farther we get away from having a one-person, one-vote principle, the more we have a political institution that can be so easily corrupted, in part, I would argue, because of the influence of money in politics, you're going to be in a world where it feels like nothing works. The private sector isn't working. The public sector isn't working. People throw up their hands, and they are exhausted and they check out. And I think that that is also part of by design, because if we all check out, then who gets to drive right. the ship? Not us. Right. Well, and the, and the kind of um, roadblocks that entities like the EPA put up are not particularly democratic all the time, um, because obviously these are bureaucrats. I mean, ideally you have, like, let's say we want to, you know, I don't know, we want to have a a low housing development or something, or a, or, a, or a new mall, or a community pool, or something, and you know you hold a you hold a public comment period about the city council has people come in and looks like there's public support to do it, and if there isn't and they do it anyway, then you th you would vote out those city council in a democracy, but oh they can't do it, or maybe they can do it, but like 15 years from now after they complete all the paperwork because of bureaucracies like the EPA, that's actually get, well, that's, avoiding that's the democratic Robbie. process. So is the to me the fact that there is there are mechanisms like notice and comment periods mm -hmm. suggest 
democracy. This suggests that there is an opportunity for people to weigh in in a way that is beneficial. If the people in the community would rather save the endangered frog, okay, that's on them. If people in the community would rather have the bridge, well, then that's on them. Like, and there's something to me, even if I disagree with the decision, that can sit, that sits well with me in a way that other kinds of decisions that aren't democratic don't sit with I mean, me. The law requires— But it also takes time, right, that's to the thing. allow notice and comment period. So these are these are all the trade-offs. Well, it's not so—the notice and comment period is fine, but it's—they it's, require—I'm um, I'm specifically harping on the policy of requiring the environmental impact report, which takes—which is, which is pointless anyway, because then it's this giant, like, eight-trillion-page document that gets produced that no one's going to read anyway. It just slows the process for no reason. And it costs a lot of money for the entity that's going to do it. Um, and then the, the whatever, so, you know, expert gets selected has a lot of sway over it. I mean, there's going to be, like, legitimate disagreements mm -hmm. on what the actual environmental impact of this thing will be, because it's very speculative. And the it takes—it's costly to produce it. It takes forever. The uh, the report that is actually produced gets, like, entered into the record, but no one on Earth is going to read it. It seems like—it's a, a lot of paperwork that slows things down that I'm saying is, is not democratic. It's government, but it's not democratic. So do you think that there should be environmental impact reports, but the process needs to be sped up, or they need to be shorter, or do you think that there should be no assessment of the environmental Im impact of a construction I'm project? saying the way it is now, the assessment is mostly used as a cudgel to thwart all development, even the development of things that, like, not just, like, another Sure, but that's, but that's factory, my question. But, that's the way it's used now. So are you saying right. that you, were, you recognize the utility of assessing whether or not a project is going to have some horrible downstream effects? I mean, you can assess it in the process of the city council or whatever the entity is deciding they want to do it, right? The, the community can speak up and say, oh, no, this would not be a good idea well, for this wait reason. Wait an environmental impact report, it's, it's not a layman's understanding of what's going to happen. It's someone, someone has to come in and actually research what the environmental impact is who has the ability to assess that. I'm saying whether how we put um, uh, public land, what use it's put for, should be back in the hands of the people and their representatives, not unelected bureaucracies. Yeah, I agree, but uh, what I'm asking is the people might want to know the environmental impact of something before it gets built. Like, how are they going to make an informed decision? So it seems to me, it, uh, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is what it seems to me is if, if you have an issue with the time it takes to do an environmental mm -hmm. impact report, that's not an argument against environmental impact reports. That's an argument against how they're done. Okay, it's an argument against how they're done. Yeah, so I think I think that's really useful because I think so many of these conversations it's like we're disagreeing. We're not really disagreeing. You you saying something like it, uh, bureaucracy is time consuming and it slows things up and sometimes that's bad. Yeah, that's an intuitively mm -hmm. correct statement. Of course, sometimes stuff takes too long and that has a bad outcome. But instead of saying, well, therefore we don't shouldn't have government. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm open well, to your. To say, therefore, no, we no, shouldn't no, no, have no. government. I, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously. I'm just. I don't mean to say that you literally said that, but you know, you're no, generally a small government, government person. Yeah. So, but instead of like leaning all the way and throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I, I just, I wish we could all be open and say, yeah, there's some downsides to the administrative state. How do we improve them? Yeah, there are a lot of downsides. We should yeah. work toward improving them. Cool. All right, more <laughs> rising after this. <laughs> Populous folk hero Oliver Anthony is out with a new song, Brink of War. Let's listen. Well, if it weren't for my whole dogs and the good Lord, they'd have me strung up in the psych ward. Cause every day living in this new world is one too many days to me. Son, we're on the brink 
Now, Anthony spoke to a Fox News reporter recently more in depth about his political worldview. Let's take a look at what he had to say. Just people to start appreciating each other for human beings and look beyond political differences and ideologies and a lot of things that I see corporate media and education doing, which is making everyone identify each other's differences and not their similarities. I want people to appreciate each other and appreciate each other's struggles and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully just find the energy that was in this song and, and manifest it in, in people's own personal lives. And just, just trying to find similarities with each other instead of division. That's, that's really all I want. I, I mean, I don't see our country lasting more than another generation the way we're headed. We've got to We've got to go back to the roots of what made this country great in the first place, which was our sense of community and our, I mean, we are the melting pot of the world and that, that's what makes us strong is our diversity and we need to learn to harness that and appreciate it and not use it as a political tool to, to keep everyone separate. Now he lost some fans after saying that who disagreed with the idea of saying that America is strong and valuable because of its diversity and characterizing it as a melting pot. Are you surprised by these reactions? Yes. So, so to be clear, I still saw a lot of love for Oliver Anthony and his new song on social media from right of center people. Um, I, I actually quite liked the new song. I think I liked it more than the uh, the previous one. In fact, um, it was not surprising for me to hear him. You know, when you hear what he actually has to say, it's actually pretty normy. Um, he, he doesn't sound. He's been almost stood up as some kind of right-wing folk hero, but he sounds pretty centrist in his orientation. I think you watched a video where he, like, literally said that he sits pretty dead center politically. Yeah, so right before he released um, these songs, I don't know if it was an album or whatever, he yeah. put a YouTube video up introducing himself to the public. It's about nine minutes long. It's worth... Uh, listening to. And in it, he describes himself this way. He says, I sit pretty dead center down the aisle on politics and always have. And just before that in the video, he mentions how when he was younger and conservatives were so pro-war, he was against that. Um, he talks about how he um, went through a period where he was doubting his faith and that he was kind of angry and an atheist and how he now has come back to God, but that there, there have been really difficult, mm -hmm. different, difficult moments during his life. He talks about how the song specifically, uh, Richmond North of Richmond, was inspired by his time, I think, working in Western uh, North Carolina, he said, where he was exposed to the people, Richmond, North of Richmond, mm -hmm. the, the political class who made life more difficult for people. He talks about not earning enough money, dollars not going far enough and being taxed too much. General, I think, very uh, relatable. Talks a lot about class drug concerns. addictions, uh, concerns of drugs in the community. Um, yeah, you know, he, he uh, again, pretty normy views. Um, it sounds like someone who, he's a musician, he's making music. Um, He's not like running for office. He doesn't have like a platform of ideas necessarily that he's running on. That which is just which is actually what you would expect if someone is trying to cater to a large audience and get them interested in their music. They're actually going to not try to say necessarily divisive political things because this is a very divided country and it's actually hard to it, it, it can be very hard to be to break through and be appreciated for your art um, by lots of groups of people if you're you know only if you're doing a lot of talking points or railing against one side or the other for political reasons. Um, so, yeah, he sounds pretty well, sure, but normal. I mean, I, I would... It sounds like he doesn't want to just be, like, the guy that only the Daily Wire likes or something. Sure. I, I do think that you can have a strong 
<laughs> I mean, this is my this is my whole shtick, right? That populism actually is popular, and having a very strong working class ideology. It's not what not wanting to offend people. You can have that very strong view and be very popular because most people don't earn very much money and are struggling in this economy. That's just the truth. So I don't know that it's especially calculated, um, his political ideology. It sounds like it's coming very much from his life experiences, which are the life experiences of most Americans um, who agree when he says, I ain't got a dollar, but I don't need a dime, talking about the jo joys he gets out of life despite not having any money, mm -hmm. picking grapes off the vine, making homemade uh, uh, wine, you know, smoke, smoking a bowl, trying to get what he can out of life. You know, that's, that's relatable content. What is interesting, though, given more perspective into his politics, is how it came to be that he was propped up, seemingly, or at least embraced, let's say, that's less stigmatized language, that he seemed to be so embraced and pushed by conservatives as specifically embodying a conservative point of view in a way that then made liberals have a knee-jerk reaction right. to try to find criticism Well, I mean, in the first video, he was really against taxes. That's something that conservatives do, not liberals. Um, well, no, I think everybody doesn't like being taxed. The question well, some is- Some of us don't like it more than others. Right, but. well, I think the liberal concern is that tax dollars aren't being spent on things that actually help communities. Instead, they're being spent on war, et cetera. And there's also an acknowledgement that rich people need to be taxed more. I think conservatives, generally speaking, want no taxes at all. And I'm not saying you, Robbie, but there are a lot of people oh, you can put me in, in the conservative bucket. movement. No, not what I'm about to say. There are a lot of people in the conservative movement who are extremely affluent and exploit mm working class people's frustration with not having enough money to advocate for their own taxes to be cut in the 1%, which is why we've seen in the last 40 years, the tax rate of the wealthy go down dramatically while working class people have only gotten crumbs of that benefit. Mm. Um, and then this song obviously has a lot of a, of a war imagery, concerns about being on the brink of war. Um, I think it, I, I don't know that it um, specifically references Ukraine, but it feels kind of like that's where it's going in some way. Like, it, it, it does say, because there's a next world war coming around. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that his, his anti-war, you know, being Republican, but being not, uh, uh, feeling out of place as someone who didn't support the war oh, back I then. I don't or, know or, if he or, or out of place with, but or, he used but to disagree with Republicans, the Republicans saying, as sure. a youth that Republicans were so pro-war. Right, but it's interesting now that. that that is such a, um, I mean, that it has become, even though obviously there are left populist people who, you know, I mean, the, there's probably no subject we talk about that we agree, you and I agree on more than the Ukraine, Ukraine and foreign policy in general. Um, but the Democratic Party is very much not there. And the Republican Party, is, it, I mean, it's more there, mixed. Neither but. party is there. There well, are fringe characters in both parties who are anti-war. There might be more on the Republicans than the Democrats. But the whole point is that the blob is bipartisan. It always has been. And no, it's I voting in lockstep the, okay, for all the, of Biden's war funding. Okay, but the, the base... Um, I don't. I'm, I'm sure there's more of a of a appetite for anti-war non-intervention among the Democratic base than is evident by if you're just polling like the actual members in Congress. But I think there, it's even more so in the Republican side. I, I think it might be true that among voters, there's a more of an anti-war influence right now because of the way that Ukraine war has been framed yeah. as a Democrat issue and voters have fallen I mean, for Trump that. Is However, there, I don't. You know, the voters aren't making policy. 
And so well, why, why I don't think the Republican Party should get, as they continue to vote for Biden's billions of dollars of, of aid to Ukraine and to Israel and to funding the military bases in Niger and all of that, as the Republicans in office are voting for all of that, I don't think they should get credit for their supporters having better ideas than they do. Right. Well, we're going to hear from a lot of the candidates tonight at the Republican debate, and I'd be very interested to hear what they say on this issue. Obviously, Trump, who's not going to be there, has very much called for a de-escalation of the Ukrainian conflict. He's um, not explained specifically what he would do differently, yeah. but has said that he would work to bring it to an immediate yeah. end, that it's a killing field out there, it's yeah. totally pointless, it's not a good idea. DeSantis has sometimes echoed those concerns a little bit with, with um, one could argue, maybe with less actual fun, uh, fundamental underlying commitment. Vivek Ramaswamy, who is now um, almost beginning to eclipse DeSantis a little bit in terms of the polling, um, has very much sounded the exact same notes as Trump uh, for de-escalating that conflict. Um, then, you know, then you have the Nikki Haley's and the Chris Christie's and the Mike Pence's, who are right. much more in the traditional neoconservative. De-escalating de that conflict, but many, many conservatives have argued in favor of escalating a conflict with China. So we talked about this a little bit earlier this week, mm -hmm. Vivek Ramaswamy saying that we, we will we protect, we will Taiwan. protect uh, Taiwan until the end of my term in 2028, at which point we're going to let Until let we have get. superconductor independence. Yeah, so said. going from strategic ambiguity, which is the policy that's supposed to be de-escalatory de with China, to strategic, to strategic clarity, I think that was his lingo, mm -hmm. which is, says we are absolutely going to defend Taiwan and enter into World War III with China. For the next eight year, for the next four years, four to eight years, I guess. I don't know if he thinks he's going to be a one-term president. I don't quite get that math. But no, I don't think it was for his years. term. It was for that's what he's predicting until we have semiconductor okay. independence. Okay, so for the next four years, and that is an that is an escalation. That is an escalation. You can say that that's a reasonable compromise, and China probably isn't going to kick the bear. But that is definitely an escalation, and we've seen this in some of Tucker's framing of these events, and et cetera. There are a lot of conservatives that will particular that will specifically criticize the war in Ukraine, because that's seen as Biden's war and there is political benefit to doing so, while still advocating for military interventionism all across the world. People like Tucker Carlson, who has apologized and said he regrets his past pro-war rabble-rousing, is one of those who doesn't seem to have completely shaken it because of a certain appetite for escalating with China. Mm. I'm not trying to smear anybody. I just want to be really clear that people who are genuinely invested in anti-war candidates should not be exploited by people who are going to trade on that and say, well, this war is bad because it's Biden's war, but here are all these other wars that I would Yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe then you'd say it's not a sincere anti-war commitment, but I don't know that the Republican base is going to be so put off by that, by the plan Vivek just spelled out there. But. I guess we'll find out. Maybe not, but then I would call them not really anti-war, but that's, that's fine. Okay. We'll have more Rising right after this. Media personality Tucker Carlson did not mince words while blasting the mainstream media's coverage of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Let's watch the latest episode of Tucker on Twitter. Pretty much everything that NBC News and the New York Times have told you about the war in Ukraine is a lie. The Russian army is incompetent, they claim. Ukraine is a democracy. Vladimir Putin is Hitler and he's trying to take over the world. Thankfully, the Ukrainians are winning. None of that is true. Every claim is false, the last one especially. The Ukrainian army is not winning. In fact, it's losing badly. Ukraine is being destroyed. Its population is being slaughtered. 
in lopsided battles with a technologically superior enemy or scattered by the millions to the rest of the globe as refugees. Ukraine is running out of soldiers. As that happens, the question will inevitably arise, who's going to replace them? If the Ukrainians can't beat Putin, who will? The answer, of course, will be us. American troops will fight the Russian army in Eastern Europe. That's most likely. And the assumption is we'll win. Now, later in the interview, Carlson spoke with retired Army colonel and former advisor to the Trump administration, Douglas McGregor, about Biden's influence over Ukrainian President Zelensky. Let's listen. Who we'll is see. Zelensky? Exactly. How would you characterize Zelensky? Well, Zelensky... George W. Bush called him our generation's Winston Churchill. Uh, well, this is W, right? Yeah. Not a very thoughtful man. Uh, he was a comedian who made a living... Uh, acting on stage, frequently pretending to be a transvestite, doing things with various body parts that I won't go into. And he was picked up by a, an oligarch named Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky has, is the individual who's probably more responsible than anybody else for funding this atrocity we call the Azov Regiment that runs around with the swastikas and Nazi gear and so forth. And he was picked and then blessed by Victoria Nuland and, and the State Department as their man. Now, when he originally ran for office, he ran on a peace platform. And he was overwhelmingly elected across the country because he said, if I am elected your, as your president, I will make peace with Russia. Ukrainians didn't want to go to war with Russia. Uh, they were looking for a way out of this and a resolution to the crisis. Of course, once he was in there, he took a different road. And I can't help but think that that road was defined for him by us. Hmm. Sounds like uh, Rudy Giuliani and Zelensky have something in common. Yes, uh, you were alluding. I wrote that same note. We, of course, recall that one time Trump and Rudy Giuliani did a drag skit where Giuliani pretends to be a woman and um, Trump sticks his face. Um, Look, Republicans can, can do, where, the, can do so. the woke wars, but they have to admit at a certain point that everybody loves drag. It's just funny. <laughs> for people to dress up in women's clothes. Everybody clothing. loves it's drag. Funny. It's funny. Shakespeare yeah. loved drag. Everybody loves drag. <laughs> South Pacific, hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, so let's set that aside. But that that's not the really the thing to criticize yeah. Zelensky for. What is the thing to criticize him for is becoming a mouthpiece of Victoria Newland, the US State yeah. Department, and, uh, and McGregor goes into some of the history there. Um, how US foreign policy choices have affected the trajectory of this war, how, uh, you know, laid um, forged the 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 path mm -hmm. that brought us to where we are now ever since the fall of the Soviet Union with respect to NATO. And that's um, something that uh, he, he, this individual, McGregor, has been talking about for a long time. He was a Trump foreign policy advisor, and it you know, shows the difference between what Trump uh, wants to do. Now, of course, was totally unable to grapple with the actual forces of the deep state that continued to have us on the same path. But, um, but echoing the desires of, of actually American people to not have uh, a confrontation with Russia. No one wants, no one thinks, even when, and maybe they think it privately, even the Biden administration knows we can't have ground troops, right? That we're not gonna have actually ground Certainly. troops fighting Russians? So I was gonna that, ask that would that. be World War III. So the Pentagon has been very clear that there will be no combat, U.S. combat 
right. troops in Ukraine. Of course, Zelensky wants U.S. combat troops in Ukraine. He wants a no-fly zone. He wants the very conditions that would create World War III. As of November 1st, uh, Pentagon Press Secretary uh, Brigadier General Pat Ryder told the media that U.S. forces were at the embassy, but that Washington had been very clear that there are no combat forces in Ukraine, no U.S. combat forces would be doing operations in Ukraine. There seems to be some acknowledgment that if there were direct interactions between yeah. a NATO country and Russia, then that is what it is. Here's, this is a proxy. We're not a real war. So what right. do you then make of McGregor's very confident statement that that is where we are headed? Well, it better not be the case. Um, and the administration has not said that they would do that. But here's another question. That, it, it's so, this never comes up, but the Biden, it would be illegal for the Biden administration to send ground forces to fight Russia because Congress, and not the president, but Congress is the branch that is supposed to declare war. We have not declared war on Russia. It would be an unconstitutional action to do that. And uh, so, well, now, do I believe the fact that it's not constitutional would necessarily preclude Biden from doing it? No. Congress has shown no appetite, sadly, for exercising its discretion, its, its, its total power, actually, over, over war declaration. They've just wholesale let the executive do whatever they want, whether it's Biden, whether it's Obama, Bush, Clinton, Reagan, anyone, Nixon, going all the way back to Nixon, but—and back further. But, um, but that is the case. So we can't just, like, have a— ground war with Russia without Congress to say so. So I had forgotten about this. In July, Biden um, Biden said 3,000 reserve troops can be sent to Europe to support NATO and Ukraine to just demonstrate our commitment to the war, <laughs> the commitment to the supporting Ukraine side. All the money the and the cluster bombs and the other <laughs> arms didn't, uh, didn't demonstrate that support? Yeah. But I do, I can see with statements like that how people can start to be concerned that this is irreducibly where we're going. I do wonder, though, McGregor making such a strong statement like that without offering any support. Well, and he did, I did see premature. him getting criticism um, for the casualty numbers estimates he gave, which uh, I was seeing some people, even people who are of our kind of persuasion and thinking about Ukraine, saying that he had gotten those numbers um, wrong. Also, McGregor, so I, I don't mean I'm to not be co-signing his overly skeptical, but he is someone who was pro-Afghanistan withdrawal, but also aggressively pro the Iraq War. Um, he is not someone who I would characterize as generally motivated by kind of an anti-war, anti-interventionist mm -hmm. um, approach to things. And so his reasons—I mean, I think that you can have reasons for not wanting to be engaged in Ukraine, namely that you are provoking a face-off between two nuclear powers, which mm -hmm. is a level of escalation that is not the same in other wars, you could say. And that there's not enough at stake the Iraq war to, or whatever, the, to justify, would justify it. U.S. This, this portion of Ukraine, whether it's right. under Russian control, independent Ukraine control, or Ukrainian control, is not a compelling enough U.S. foreign policy yeah. interest. But I would like to hear more from people about why it is, you know, what, what, to, what to them is the line. When this conflict started, when Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, coming to this not knowing very much, as most people, I think, didn't about the region, my core question was simply, I, I acknowledge it's obviously true that Russia is invading illegally. Now, the, pre the precipitating events and all of the things, and that is all true, but fundamentally, that's illegal and wrong. So there is, I think, in the abstract, a question of what our moral responsibility is, what anybody's moral responsibility is to help someone who is being violated in that way. But my fundamental question was, 
what is our role as a nation state, not the, an abstract moral principle, mm -hmm. given that there are a lot of very terrible things happening in the world at all times, much loss of life that could be prevented by America's Everywhere. resources all the time, including military conflicts, including droughts, including sanctions and conflicts that are our doing in the first place. So why are we investing here? And, and, and not having gotten a good answer on that, I remain unpersuaded, but I am curious about what, what sort of things are motivating someone like um, uh, McGregor, who is not someone who has a generalized anti-war principle. Is it that he thinks that this war just can't be won, which seems right and true, and that it's a waste of resources? Is it that he does have this ideological opposition to Zelensky and the Azov Battalion because of the the c consistent Nazi memorabilia and anti-Semitic views that keep bubbling up there? Is it because he thinks Zelensky is a weak leader who is a, f a fake actor, you know, a failed actor and shouldn't be followed into war and is a U.S. puppet? I mean, it can be a mix of all of these mm -hmm. things, but I do wish we would have more of that kind of a conversation mm -hmm. so I can have a better sense of where people who frankly don't share my anti-war bona fides are coming from in this in, the, in these kinds of conversations. Well, it was a long conversation. Viewers can check out the rest of it if they're curious on what else he had to say. And we will have more rising right after this. New Jersey's Rutgers University is the latest college to confirm that it will mandate the COVID-19 vaccine and require its students and staff to mask up this coming semester. According to a News Nation report, over 100 universities nationwide will adopt vaccine mandates for in-person instruction this fall. 61% of colleges recommending getting the shot, while 18% actually require it. Mm. Meanwhile, a Kaiser Family Foundation poll published this week reveals many Americans, a third to be exact, believe the COVID vaccine killed thousands of people. According to the survey, roughly 2,000 people, 10%, responded that they think it's definitely true that the mRNA vaccine was responsible for death of otherwise healthy people, and 23% said it was probably true. Over on Fox News, host Jesse Waters accused Big Pharma and the government of trying to scare Americans into buying more COVID vaccines. Let's watch. Pharmaceutical companies have a new line of boosters rolling out in the fall. Yes, older Americans or some Americans with comorbidities may need them, and that's fine. But CBS, owned by Viacom, a company that made a fortune during the pandemic when everybody was shut in watching TV, is doing free advertising for Pfizer and drumming up false fears. Pharmaceutical companies are getting paid and doctors get a cut from the boosters given. Only this time, the insurance companies foot the bill instead of us, Uncle Sam. But don't worry, Biden's giving pharmaceutical companies over a billion dollars so uninsured Americans can get free shots. Now we're beginning to wonder if this year's mutant variant scare tactic pushed on network TV is less about saving lives and more about lining corporate pockets. So he's referencing there, obviously, this interview we talked about yesterday with um, Scott Gottlieb, um, who is a former FDA commissioner and also sits on the board of Pfizer, who was talking about the importance of getting um, boosted come the fall, um, even though, as I, I noted yesterday, they don't ha yet have out the booster that is correlated with the latest variant, which is purportedly as you know, as different from Omicron as Omicron was from the original strain. So, uh, so we'll have to see. I, you know, I don't think, um, I think it's a wild policy to still require vac vac not just vaccines, but boosters for a campus population. There are, you know, it should be your own decision to override 
it being your own decision. It would have to be that the public health rationale is so strong. But, you know, as we know, the main beneficiary of the vaccine is you, particularly if you're elderly or you fall into a certain, you know, at-risk individual. Most people have some level of protection, although it might not hold up against this new variant. Um, this is the only really group of people in America still who are under, you know, uh, who are under a vaccine mandate are college kids who are, you know, on average, I'm sure that, you know, there are, of course, there are some college kids who have um, immunocompromised status, but overall, this is going to be like one of the least at risk of, ser of serious disease and death populations you could possibly have, and they're the ones <laughs> under a vaccine mandate. It seems pretty backward to me. What do you think about uh, the poll that shows such a significant number of people believe that there have been thousands of deaths um, from the, vac the mRNA vaccine specifically? Yeah, I, so I don't, I mean, more interested, they, like what people believe is what people believe. It's not the case that, that, that you can attribute a significant number of deaths to the vaccines themselves. I, I've always said I, I don't think the, you know, the, the part of vaccines that a lot of mainstream um, voices got wrong was over promising on how effective they would be, not on the, that they're relatively safe. Um, that still, as, as far as you know, the evidence we can uh, we can look at, still seems to be the case. It, it is true that you know if you're a, a teenage male, there is some degree of heightened risk of myocarditis. Um, although others will make the argument that that is also true of COVID itself. Mm -hmm. Although getting vaccinated does not stop you from getting COVID, so it's not like you you cancel out the risk of one by doing the other. Um, given that again, COVID has been something that. Um, the overwhelming majority of people have. But it does prevent the likelihood of hospitalization, which tends to lead to the longer-term health effects that we're talking about here, right? So, right, but, right. But, but you started off by saying... But people in that age group would be extremely unlikely to suffer um, a hospitalization anyway because of the age skew of COVID. So you say people believe what they believe, but I think the concern that folks have had since the beginning of that is that there are media outlets that have fostered that particular mm -hmm. belief that yeah, you know, I mean, you see a lot of it on social media that died suddenly, where everything you know, we've covered, right. a, and we've covered the a couple. We've, we've debunked them: the basketball player, the well, other I'm not people. Talking about our media outlets, yeah. but you know, there is this irony here. So, you know, Jesse Waters there was framing it as a kind of a, again a liberal corporate media conspiracy. Of course, MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News in the Hill are all corporate media. That mm -hmm. is obviously true. So you have to say something more substantive than just corporate media, unless you're making a fundamental c uh, criticism of the influence of advertising, advertisers, which I think is legitimate and fair across the board. But specifically speaking, he says that CNN made all this money, MSNBC, I forget which, made all of this money during um, COVID. In fact, all of these institutions made a lot of money across COVID. Fox News saw a 38% uh, revenue climb in 2021 with double-digit growth at Fox News Channel. Mm -hmm. Everybody was raking in the money during the pandemic when everybody was home in front of their TV, so I'm not clear yeah, what I, that point was. And moreover, specifically, a number of pharmaceutical companies also advertise over at Fox. So some of Fox's top advertisers include Johnson & Johnson, GlaxoSmithKline, and Novartis AG. Other top vaccine manufacturers like Pfizer and AstraZeneca ran hundreds of commercials on the network since uh, the start of the year. This is an article from uh, 2021. So, yeah, I, I don't COVID. think um, necessarily. This is. I know some people on the right have done this. Um, 
you know, uh, objecting to or badger, badgering certain companies that are in certain sectors. A lot of tech got this a lot. Like, oh, look how, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter and YouTube are, they're benefiting from the pandemic because more people are shut at home, you know, wa watching their screens. And like, yes, that is true, but it's still a, like, given that we're all shut in watching our screens, it is better that these things exist, right? It's better that it's, it's, I'm sure Amazon did really well during the pandemic, but I have would have rather gone through the pandemic with Amazon. Yeah, um, so I'm just trying to get to the root so of what really the actual criticism, agree with that is criticism is here. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just th this is. Sorry, this is what I was saying in an earlier block where, you know, it is it is very easy to weaponize legitimate concerns about bias in the media. Well, what, to what, wait a minute, but to but to say that the bias is somebody else's media, but not mine. You know what I mean? Okay, well, it, nobody is going to admit that their own self is biased. I mean, well, you, that's, that's I mean you just the, don't thrive. I mean, like, let's, I mean, well, let's then, be real. You can't, you're not going to have a show on well, Fox News if, like, you, uh, if you're just, well, Fox News is terrible. Argument. Fox News is biased. Fox News is, like, then be an, be, do independent CNN and media. MSNBC don't do that either. Do, do independent media. I'm very glad to have an independent podcast. I, you know, I, know. I, I am an independent media for well, a lot of reasons, including that. I have been very explicitly blacklisted by certain major media companies and all these other kinds of things, and I think it's very valuable because progressives aren't being heard on any of these channels, generally speaking. But also, um, at very least, make the generalized claim. If you're going to start talking about media bias, then be honest about it and don't use it just to say, my opponent's media is biased but not mine. It just seems really empty. And it's not an argument that he has to make at all I mean, I to make his broader case about I don't really. Teams. I don't expect anyone... Fox, CNN, MSNBC, anyone to ha have any significant part of their coverage be about how their own institution is bad, because that's just like not how the well, world works. Well, it's not works, about the own institution being bad, but I, I, you know, I will credit The Hill, for example, when we had our kerfuffle about uh, uh, Katie Halper. I had my belief about what happened. Katie Halper had their belief about what happened. And The Hill allowed me to come and say my piece on the show unrestricted. But for that, I would not still be on the show. So I do think that there are different levels of these sorts of things, and people should be honest about them and know what their own limits are. But my fundamental point is, though, not that anybody is really free from any kind of influence, but that if you're making the case that your opponent is so biased and corrupted and you're under the identical pressures, then what are you even talking about? Well, hang about? on, because they were calling out—they bring on Scott Gottlieb, as an expert to talk about this, and he is literally on the board of Pfizer, yeah, which is often not disclosed. Yeah, that's they should in, disclose in that. the uh, in yeah yeah. So and he got to set, and he went, he, you know, from what he got to set that he was FDA commissioner. He was substantially responsible yeah. for the rules for what drugs get to go to market. I completely and now agree. he's on, and now he works for Pfizer. But Jesse Waters just sat there, and he's saying enlisted. he's out there saying you college students who, you know, may not be at significant risk, I, these boosters are coming. I mean, Jesse Waters just sat there and listed all of these advertisers. He said, CNN made a lot of money during the pandemic, and it had all of these advertisers from, that were pharmaceutical companies, mm -hmm. and that's why it's biased. Yeah, and if, those, if that. that's your point, then you probably shouldn't be making that point from the perspective of Fox News. Fair that's enough. all I'm saying. I don't care about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, uh, Brianna and I will be back for another amazing edition of our show. It'll be the post-debate episode of our show, right? The debates yeah, so tonight. We we'll have lots to talk we about. We will both be watching that and uh, consuming and enjoying uh, <laughs> the content there. And we will be back tomorrow to discuss it with you. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Do you have a specific debate watching cocktail?
Um, I think I'm going to try to stay clear-headed tonight <laughs> because there's going to be a lot going on. Generally speaking, I would say a tequila soda with lime. Mm -hmm. You? Um, I, I often watch the debate at, at my friend Peter Suderman's house, a colleague of mine at Reason, and he makes delicious craft cocktails. He's got me really into Negronis, so that's usually oh, I do a like debate, Negronis. debate watching cocktail. All right. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. <laughs>